you'd open your Bibles to 1 John uh, chapter 2. We're going to look at the last two verses of chapter 2 this morning as we continue our look into the letter of John. Get there myself. And we've come to this, this passage of Scripture. We're going to look at verses specifically 28 and 29. And John is coming to this idea of, of and it's not a new idea in the book, uh, he's used the word abide quite a few times. And we've come to this place where I kind of thought it would be important that we kind of look a little bit more intently at this word. He's used it a few times uh, up until this, to this point. And I think it's, in, it's just important to us to, to, to step into John's mind the best that we can and see how he is understanding this word and how he's encouraging uh, these believers Remember, he's writing to some believers. He's, he's kind of walked us through some tests. He's talked about uh, sin and all these things. And he's saying, look, this is, this is what it means. And he wants us to abide in him and specifically, I believe, in Christ. And I've entitled this, you know, I'm very unique in my title this morning. Um, completely taking it from Scripture, right? So that's, yeah, that's good. Abiding in him. Um, I believe in life. Uh, there are times, and maybe you've experienced this, where we just kind of go through the struggles. We realize we know as, as followers, we know we are saved. We know, uh, we know that we know Christ. Uh, we see in the test that even John has talked about it, how he's encouraged us uh, to know that we have eternal life. And he said, look, here's, here's some tests. Here's some ways in which you can know that you are, in fact, going to have eternal life, that you know Christ. He says, are you growing in righteousness, right? Are you growing in your love for the church, right? Specifically, God, are you growing in truth? Do you desire the truths of God's word? Do you have a heart and a hunger for that? And John says, these are the things. And, and, and for us this morning, we would say, yeah, there's times I, I really, Pastor, I love that. I love it. And then there's other times where we may feel that's maybe the last thing we get to in a day. Maybe it's a struggle. Sometimes maybe we feel like it's just difficult to really kind of walk this, this road at times. Maybe there's times where we feel like, you know what, I'd like to just take a break. You know, this, this past week, um, I don't know if many of you like, I like baseball. And so, of course, the, the, uh, my family and I watched the series. Uh, because I'm a Giants fan, I didn't watch it with great anticipation, hoping the Dodgers would lose. I just want to say that. Um, <laughs> But I did feel like announcing that, you know, the, the World Series happened, and instead of starting with the Astros winning, I could start with saying the Dodgers lost, but I, I, didn't, I didn't want to do that. But it was a great game, and I, and I love baseball, and, it was, and if you watched any of the games, of course, they went seven games, and they were quite, some were quite lengthy to extra innings, and, which is what you want. It's great baseball. And there was, I think, some records set. There was one gentleman who played for the Astros. I think he had five home runs in, in four games in the World Series. No one had ever, to this point, I think, I believe, done that. And you just think of, of the pressure, right? And those moments where you see this really unfold. It's, you know, the batter needs to get a hit, and, and the pitcher really needs to get an out. And it almost seems like every out or every play had this kind of weight and feeling to it. And when we think of baseball and we think of the greats of baseball, maybe we think of moments like that. Where you go, man, that's, that's pretty incredible. Some of these guys can play at that level. As I was going through my, my notes this morning, I came across a little bit of, of baseball trivia, right? And it's not as glamorous as that. It's about a man who was named Clint Courtney. 
And back in the 50s, he played for the Baltimore Orioles. And he was a catcher. And he's not going to be, you're not going to find his name in, in, in Cooperstown, in the Hall of Fame, or anything like that. It's, it's said of his life as he played that he kind of had a tendency to make easy plays look very difficult. Right? When he, they said when he ran to, to the bases, it just looked like it was a, it was a struggle. And they kind of, you know, those who knew him and played with him said, man, it was just, you know, he was just one of those guys. It just seemed like it, it was really tough for him to play the game. He really had to work hard at it. And even when he worked hard at it, it didn't quite come off as smoothly as he would like, right? They thought he just really struggled. But the one thing that they pointed out about him as he was a catcher, and there was many times in which back in the 50s, I guess he, he uh, um, took a lot of, of uh, foul tips and, and sometimes the bats would hit him and and he was quite beat up and bruised, and, and over time he was, he was so committed and so uh, resolved in, in playing, especially playing his position, that he, nick, he got the nickname of Scrap Iron, old Scrap Iron they used to call him. And there were times they said it got so bad, he looked like he was someone returning from a war scene. He was so bandaged up, you know, on the dugout, they were bandaging him up, and they would think something would happen, and of course he won't, he won't come out to play the next inning, and here he comes, all bandaged up, going to uh, behind home plate to, to play catcher. It got to the point where some of the other players that played with him thought he was a little bit crazy, right? He's just a little bit insane was the, was the word I believe they used. But they, they looked at him and they thought with such great resolve and such confidence he would come out and continue to play. Let no one else take his place. And I think sometimes as we look at, of course it's a sports element, but we look at our own lives. We look at our Christian life. Isn't it sometimes, doesn't it feel like that? That I'm kind of beat up, Pastor. I've kind of gone through a lot. I have a difficult coworker. There's a family situation. It's just really difficult and hard. And life can be that way. And John, I think, has this understanding. He's used this word a few times, and he's, he's kind of saying, look, you need to abide. He's talked about those who abide in God. They last forever. And he sets that in the context of this world. It's, it's going away, but those who abide... I think there's an element for us that's important that maybe sometimes, yeah, we, we feel beat up and we feel like a piece of scrap iron, right? But sometimes I think we need exactly that. And John gives us, you know, he's saying, look, the, the life, there's, you're in the context, especially the early church. There are those who are stirring up confusion and, and going out and they're, of course, just standing for Christ and being a follower. Matt, you, you might lose your life. And these are the words he's encouraging them with. Abide in him. And he gives us a wonderful motivation for it. He gives us some reasons for it, if you will. And he comes to these verses and he says, and, and this is in uh, chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. He says, and now. He's just concluded his, his last test, the test on truth. He talks about the spirit of the Antichrist and, and you having this truth in you, abiding this truth in you. He's talked about and he says in verse 28, and now, little children, Abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Let me offer a brief prayer this morning. Lord, as we come to your word now, I ask God that you would allow us, for the power of your Spirit, to understand, to help us to understand, to grow in what it means to abide in Christ and Him alone. 
I pray, Lord, that you would allow me to get out, out of the way that every uh, thought and every life here this morning would be fixed upon you and that you would allow us to grow in that understanding and not to leave this place the same, but to know you more, to be committed more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little bit of background as we get to this. I kind of touched on this a little bit. John has, he's very... Uh, uh, sincere, right? He has this idea that, that he almost he wants to grab us by the shoulders. He wants to look you in the eyes. He wants to encourage you, and he wants you to know how you can have or have the confidence in having, the assurance of having eternal life. It says that in chapter 5, verse 13. That's kind of his thing. And so he, he begins the letter, right? And he's talking about this wonderful fellowship. He tells us he's a primary source, right? I walked with him. I was there with him. I've had fellowship with him. And then he says, you know what, my joy, the joy of coming of knowing Christ. John says, my joy even grows more when I know that you have fellowship with him. And he, then he says in, in verse 5, he starts talking about this, this wonderful God who is light. And there is no darkness in him at all. So he sets the tone, right? If we're going to have eternal life, well, we've got to realize how we're going to get there. You first have to understand, one, you can have fellowship with him, right? We can have that. But you have to realize that God is holy, and that's what John is saying. He is holy. There's no darkness found in him. He is completely holy. So he really lays the foundation for our sin problem. We understand God's holiness. We understand the importance of the cross and how wonderful God's grace and his mercy is for us. When we say God is holy, and he doesn't lower his standard and say, this side, you guys look great this morning. You're paying attention. You're taking notes. I like it. You know what? You have a little bit of favor. I'm going to lower my standard. You guys can come into heaven. God doesn't do that. And he doesn't say, you, you guys, are just, well, we want to talk about you guys. We'll get the standards up here, right? He doesn't do any of that. God says the standard is immensely high, and only perfection gets you there. So we're left with this problem. If this is God who is holy, then we go through chapter 1, and John is saying, look, there are those who are creating confusion. And they're saying, look, they, they, they say they have no sin. These guys are confused, and they think they have you know, Christianity 2.1. They've got the higher version, and they're creating confusion, and they're leaving. But John says some one, I think, a wonderful verse that's important for us to grab hold of in verse 10 of chapter 1, where he says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make God to be a liar. And what's amazing about that, and John's going to do it in this passage that we're going to talk about here in a moment, is he's saying we, right? He's talking to believers, and John includes himself. I love to have that idea of John sitting in the pew with us, and he's saying, look, brothers and sisters, we're all in this, and if we say we don't have sin, we're going to tell, we have to look at God and say, you know what, you're lying. Because God is holy and because he is just, John naturally says, look, there is one. There is the means in which God has given to us. It is Christ. The righteous, the advocate, right? He becomes our propitiation. It is God's means for you and I to be saved. And that's wonderful, great, profound news. And we get excited about that. And so John says, okay, so now you understand. Let's, let's talk about what this looks like in your life. I want to encourage you. And so he walks us through these tasks. He says the first test, beginning in verse 3 of chapter 2, right, is the test of righteousness, as we grow in our sanctification, as we grow and develop in these things. And John says, if you see this, if you have a desire in obedience to God's commands, you see this developing in you, this is a very good thing. And he says in verse 6, he who says he abides, right? We have that word, abides in him, ought himself also to walk as Christ. And he goes, that's our test. And he gives us another one, a test of love. You have a love and a growth uh, uh, for the church, a love for God. 
John begins to, to, I think, take a break after that test. Maybe he feels that he, you know, I'm kind of hitting you guys kind of hard, and maybe we're, we're looking at our lives and assessing things and maybe going, well, I don't know. I'm kind of struggling with that. But then he says, look, you live in the context of this world that is passing away, right? And he says all of us need to grow and to mature. He says some of us are, are new to the faith. And he says, your dear children, term of endearment, you're young. Some of us have been walking with the Lord a long time. You spent time with him. He refers to them as fathers. And those, all those else, in between the new and the fathers are the young men, right? And he says, look, you're on this journey. We need to develop. Why is that important? Because you live in a world. The world's values are nothing to do with Christianity. The world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And John says, that's passing away. He goes on, the last test and the test of truth, and he says in verse 18, little children, it is the last hour. Even then he felt the weight. He's not speaking of the very last time, and, and you know, he's talking about the spirit of the Antichrist and those who've gone out from us. He's saying, look, you live in this context. You and I this morning live in a context of a world that is against Christ, the spirit of the Antichrist, right? Against, opposed to. And he says, look, you should have these things developing we see the importance as we look at this, and John kind of concludes chapter 2 here, and he says, And now, right, at this time, at this time, little children, term of endearment, abide in him. Abide in him. And so this comes to what I want to talk about this morning, this idea of abiding. How do we go about that? How do we approach this? And my first point is we abide in him with honest obedience. With honest obedience. Not just obedience that says, hey, I should be obedient for obedience' sake. But the understanding of why we are obedient. The word here, the Greek word for abide, minnow, just simply means, right, a, a period of time, staying in one place for a long period of time, resting in God, right? It's a verb. It's present active imperative. So uh, John is giving us a command here with this. It's something new when it comes to abide. It says, here is the command. I want you to abide in Christ He's used this word, he uses this word, not to this point, but throughout the, the letters of 1 John, he uses this word abide 24 times. I think it's pretty important to John that we take note of this, right? That we understand it. John uses it in his gospel, talking about God abiding in us and us abiding in him. He's used it quite well-roundedly. But here we have this idea of command. We are to remain in Christ. Now here it's important to note, we're not talking about salvation. He's speaking to believers, those who know Christ. He's saying, as you live this life out in the context of the last hour and these things that are happening, it's very important for you and I that we abide. That we abide with honest obedience. And what does that mean? Well, simply we trust him completely cannot have a relationship if we don't trust him completely. Right? We can attach that to his word. We trust his word completely. John says we are to be in Christ, which sounds kind of, kind of odd, right? We know when we, we get saved and we believe on Christ, we are in him. But here he's talking about this act of obedience, your life, right? Living it out in the context of where you exist and the things that, that you have to give attention to. He's saying, look, in this, I want you to trust, trust God, trust Christ completely. Place your whole life in his care. So how do we know, right? We've placed our full life, our attention, all that we are, into his care. 
Hopefully throughout this letter you've had moments where maybe you've looked upon your own life and you begin to assess, and I think that's exactly what John wants. Look at what is most important to you. Are you trusting in something other than Christ? Or have you created some type of equation that says, well, I, I've got Christ, but I'm also thinking these good works are going to get me some good things here at the end. I think it all works together. We, we need to work through that and say, no, uh, you need to Christ. For salvation, it's Christ alone, and then Christ empowers us. Right? He brings before us good works in which to do, but they don't earn our salvation? Do we see a desire uh, in us when we deal with sin honestly? Do we have an attitude of repentance in regards to that? I think that's a good indicator. Lord, I want you to be glorified in me, and simply that, that leads to, a, to loving God, right? When we trust him, Lord, I, I love you with my life. I know you care for me. I look upon these tests of righteousness and of love and truth. My desire is to honor you, my desire is to bring glory to you. I trust your word. I trust what it says. I trust it enough to change the way I treat my family, change the way I treat my coworkers, change the way I look at this world. I trust you completely. And so to have this, we could simply say, if, if you have been boarding in, if you are saved, then you are in Christ, right? And if you're in Christ, well, then naturally, uh, John hits on this, we want to or we should be living righteously, to live righteously explains how not to be ashamed of Christ's coming, because John's going to talk about that here in a moment, right? In verse 29, it says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, at first reading, we may look at that and say, Well, this kind of sounds like our righteous behavior is the cause and condition right? Just the opposite is what is true. There's a verb. Literally means has been born of him. We have the Greek perfect tense. It's an action that is completed with respect to the presence. The meaning is that this righteous life you live is evidence of a work that is already done, of a new birth. Some people can approach it backwards and say, well, if I do these good works, I can prove God has done something. And John is saying, no, it's the other way around. Because Christ has done something and you understand the meaning and the importance of the gospel because God is holy. And I'm not going to go around and say I'm, I'm perfect. No, I realize I'm a sinner. I'm not going to dare call God a liar. I need his provision, which is Christ, the propitiation. When you understand that, it leads to the right motive, right, of living this life out. And John says this becomes Part of our evidence, our sanctification becomes part of that truth of knowing our assurance we have eternal life. He's saying God is righteous. If you understand that and you become closer to God, well, naturally you're going to begin to mirror some of those things. You're going to live a righteous life just as parents to children reflect that. Peter picks up on this in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3. He says, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge, right? Knowledge. Important for John that you know. Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Our new life in Christ, right? Knowing him produces godliness. We begin to live righteously. It's a lifelong process. So we rest in him. We trust him. We live righteously. And this becomes very important for John because it's all rooted in the gospel, and what I want to say here is, is to do this, to have an honest obedience is for, I just want to encourage you, grab hold of the gospel with both hands, right? Hold on to the gospel at all costs. It is the most important. We live in a world, as John is saying, is passing away. A social media and everything that you watch is shouting at you, right? The pride of life, the pride of lust, excuse me, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. It's shouting these things to you. 
It's saying this is what is most important. This is how you should rate yourself. This is how the scorecard you should be using, right? If you've got these things going, then you're somebody. And John is saying, hey, don't give any attention to that. That's passing away. But he who abides in God lives forever. Verse 17, right, of chapter 2. So we must realize that we live in this world. This world is shouting this to us. It's very important. It's almost like John here says, look, I want to grab, I want to make eye contact with you and say, dear children, abide in him. Abide him. Hold on to the gospel. Grab it with both hands. Be tenacious here. Be very dogmatic here. Right? This is a hill we die on because it is everything. It is the most important thing of which we have the hope of salvation. And he would say, if you're not, right, if you're not clinging to the gospel, John would probably say, well, you're probably not abiding in him. It's that important to him. Abide, right, rest in, stand firm in, don't waver in this. And I say this, hold on to the gospel with both hands so that you would do exactly what John wants us to do, let go of this world. To have honest obedience, you've got to grab the gospel, let go of the world. Once again, John is saying it's passing away. That he who does the will of God abides forever. I believe John could say it with complete honesty and sincerity, if you love the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, if you like it more than being obedient to Christ, understanding his commands, seeing them worked out in your life, doing your best in those moments where we fail, we come and we repent. We say, God, forgive me. Help me to follow after you. If that's not a mark of you, he would say you're probably not abiding in Christ. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about your active obedience, your honest obedience. In this world, in the context of this world, is it more important? Is Christ more important to you than you getting your way? I could see that in application. Let go of this world. Let go of materialism. Let go of the flesh. Let go of these things. And we consistently, honestly, right? We'll probably struggle here, but we have to consistently work on it. To abide in him honestly means that you love Christ more. And isn't that the cost of discipleship? Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24 through 26? Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? I believe when this happens, right, as followers of Christ, and John is saying, look, he's saying the same thing Jesus is saying. This world's passing away. We're in the last hour. There's, there's those out there who are against Christ. Guess what? You live in that context, so let's let go of it. Let's cling to the gospel. Hold on to it with both hands. And I believe when we do this, we feel what? Like we're in this world, but we're not of it. We may feel like a stranger. We may feel a little bit alienated. I think that comes with it. Because John says in 3.1, right, the world does not know us because it did not know him. So it's important for us. And we come and we say, look, I want to abide. I'm a follower of Jesus. I know him as my Savior. I want to abide. Then be honest in your obedience. 
honest and obedience. But John goes a little bit further for us, and I think he wants to encourage us. My second point, we abide in him with great motivation. Great motivation, right? He simply says, the king is coming, right? The king is coming when he appears. Verse 28, now little children abide in him that when he appears. You know, it's not if, it's when, right? I love the, the, the authors, of course, writing under the power of the Holy Spirit, giving us God's word. There's, there's never this idea that let me, let me make an apologetic for Christ's return. They just operate here like he's coming. This is a known fact. It's fact he's coming. It's not an F. It's a win. So John doesn't feel that he has to, whether he's had other conversations with these people or not, he doesn't feel he has to write that here. Right? He's coming back to when he returns. Do you realize that in all the books of the New Testament, a mention to Christ's return is in all of them save one. Galatians. Every, the short books, the long books, all of them talk about Christ returning. And if you think about Galatians, Paul is dealing with some very specific doctrinal issues, so he's kind of narrowed in and focused on those things. So he hasn't probably broadened it out, but if he was doing that, he most likely would touch on it as well, since he touched on it in his other letters. We realize that Jesus himself talked about him returning. In John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus says, Let, your, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. It's amazing when you, you look at the disciples and they've heard these things. They've walked with Jesus. And I wonder always those moments where it's all, be, all of a sudden becomes really real for them. Because there's times it just didn't quite connect the dots. Let's be honest, right? There's times where Jesus was frustrated with his disciples. right? And there's a moment of the ascension. And imagine when Jesus is taken up into the sky, they're probably standing around going, well, what do we do now? Right? And this is why the angels appear in Acts 1.11. What the angels tell the men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven. Why are they doing that? Because they're, they're not sure, right? There's, there's, they've been taught this. They've been, it's been communicated to them, but they're not firing on all cylinders yet. They're just going, wow, look, he died and he rose again. Now we're standing here. Some time is gone. Now he's up. And what do we do now? Right? And the angels have to remind them, this same Jesus, this same Jesus, the one you've walked with, the one you've had fellowship with, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. For the fact remains, right? Jesus said, the angels have said it, he will come bodily. This is a great motivation. We have to realize this is very important, right? He's coming back. He's going to come back as a conquering king. He's going to judge. His rule will be absolute and true. And we know this for a fact. And it gives us reasons to say, yes, I'm not an accident. He knows my name. He's coming back for me. I should never feel abandoned. And John says, look, when he returns, this is why I want you to abide so you would have confidence and you would not be ashamed. We want to be confident and unashamed. Verse 28b, that when he appears, we may have confidence, not be ashamed before him at his coming. You know, it's interesting as you kind of get into this, this, this passage here, you come to the different views and people have, and some, some people take this passage to mean that 
the, the, those that John has mentioned in verse 19 of chapter 2, those who have gone out from us, as John says, they were never part of us. They, they would have stuck with us if they were part of us, but they're out. And some people take this to mean that, that these are the ones that Jesus, or excuse me, John is talking about when he says these will be the ones who will be ashamed. And we can look at that and say, well, there's, there's some idea here where they did profess, they walked, and in, 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 in somehow they knew the truth, right? And somehow they rose above it. Um, they professed to know Christ, and ultimately they turned away. This will be their shame, right? John says this. They went out from us. This is verse 19. But they were not of us. And if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out <clears throat> that they might be manifest that none of them were of us. We see the denial. We see that that makes sense that they would be ashamed, right? They're ashamed of this. Jesus spoke to this in Mark 8, 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, you can imagine what the Lord thinks of the current generation if he thinks of it then. But of him, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in his glory, right? The glory of the Father with his holy angels. So we say, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But as you kind of dig into this, as I mentioned earlier, Paul, or excuse me, John has this idea of, of inclusion. He includes himself. Remember, he's talking to believers, and he says in verse 28, when he appears, we, we may have confidence and not be ashamed. I don't think John is talking about those who went out. He's talking to believers. He's talking to you and I. He's sitting amongst the pew amongst us. He's saying, look, we are the ones, and when he comes back, is he going to look into your eyes, or are you going to avoid eye contact, right? Oh, there's Jesus. Oh, okay. I'm hold my eyes down here. I have a friend who I went to Bible college with. He's a pastor over in Concord. He's doing a series right now called Atheistic Christians. I thought, wow. And his subtitle under it is, is those who believe that there is the truth of God, right? He is real, but yet they live that he is like he's unreal. And we have this idea of holding on to two. I like the benefits of knowing, yeah, I've got my salvation ticket to ride, so to speak. And yet I do like living in the things of the world. And he's dealing with that subject. And I think that's so appropriate. It seems like today, isn't this kind of the, the pressing, the driving element is to say, come, look, we are in this. And there'll be a moment when the Lord returns and he wants, John wants you to be confident and not say, oh, man, I don't want him to look at me. He's going he's gonna, to, uh, you know, there's going to be some things. And the Bible speaks to this, right? Some have worked for Christ out of selfish ambition, vain conceit, pride, prideful motives. 1 Corinthians 3, chapter, 12, verse, uh, uh, chapter 3, 12 through 15 says this, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So we might think there will be some in, in heaven who get there because our salvation is secured in Christ. It's what Christ has done. So we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about living and abiding, following, enjoying, trusting, growing in our sanctification, building on a sure foundation but there will be some in heaven who might smell a fire, right? Gone through the fire, their works are consumed. And, and John's desire, 
And I believe sincerely, he says, little children, right? Term of endearment, look into my eyes, right? Abide in him. Trust him. Maybe some of us this morning feel that weight. Maybe we're harder on ourselves and we may think, oh man, what have I done? Have I done enough? I always think of um, John Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. I think of the, shares the story of his father who preached to an elderly man who would attend often, but yet would, would not believe, but he loved to set through the messages. And one Sunday, the Spirit draws him into the kingdom, and he weeps. John, as a young boy, sees all this, and he hears the man sobbing through his tears, I've wasted it, I've wasted it, my whole life I've wasted it. And he encourages through that book that, that we would not live a life that holds on to the world. We live a life that grabs hold of the gospel and our passion, our desire would be to help others come to know him as well. So John says, look, you need to have an honest confidence, or excuse me, an honest uh, obedience, right? An honest obedience develops into a wonderful confidence. We have a great motivation for that purpose. But my last point this morning is really kind of driving the idea of application. How do we how do we live this out? And so my last point is we live in, a, in Him with a living faith. This is how we live it out. It's a living faith. It's not a dead faith. It's a living faith. You know, many times in life as I was looking at, you know, studying through this passage, I, I came across this illustration of a, of a photographer. It's a very tragic illustration of a photographer who, had, who was into to parachuting and, and he had done it many times taking many photos, and he got kind of caught up in one instance where they were doing this special jump, and they were doing all this great photography work, and he got so consumed with that that he actually mounted into the plane and, and jumped without a parachute. You can imagine, even through the flight, something he's done a thousand times, and it's so many times before he neglects the most important. Of course, he realizes right at the moment, the photoing, the shooting's done, I go to grab the cord, it's not there. He tragically falls to his death. I think in, in life, sometimes we get so used to hearing the Bible, so used to hearing the gospel, that it just becomes, well, something amongst the noise, if you will. But our faith should not be a dead faith. It should be a living faith that is active and real. It should be changing us, influencing others. And for that to happen, I just have this, these little three sub-points here. A living faith must be rooted in God's Word must be rooted in God's Word. I've been reading the book by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones called What is an Evangelical? I encourage, if you, have a, if you like to read, I would encourage this book. It's taken from three or four of his lectures. On that topic, he's defining what is an evangelical. Uh, I think that's a very interesting topic in this day and age when you hear of those departing the evangelical church, those claiming evangelicalism but yet uh, not living according to the, to the definition. And here's what he says in the part of this book. He's talking about being a person of the book. He says, this is true of every evangelical. He is a man of one book. He starts with it. He submits himself to it. This is his authority. He does not start from any extra biblical authority. He confines himself and submits himself completely to the teaching of the Bible. It's pretty amazing throughout the book how he defines what is an evangelical today, and I would venture to say it would be hard-pressed to find an evangelical in many churches. 
We must be rooted in God's word, and we hear that so often. Oh, yes, absolutely, Pastor. I've, yeah, we love it. There was a conference this week, that uh, Ligonier conference, and I shared with the Thursday night group that came and prayed that I was listening to some of the question and answer. I, I appreciate some of the men who spoke. I've read some of their books. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson was one, and there was a question which they talked about the gospel. Will ISIS overcome the gospel or something to that effect? And, and he says, no, that's, that's not the problem. ISIS will never conquer the gospel. The gospel will always win the day for it's God's truth. But he said the, the greatest hurt to the gospel of Jesus Christ is Christians. Christendom, I believe is the word he used. And what does he mean by that? As we've become so familiar, we've watered it down, if you will, or we've diluted it to the point where it's, it's just one thing amongst the other things that I do. It's something I do on Sunday. And I think it's interesting because he goes on to say that we've lost the, the high view of God. We've lost sight of God's holiness. And I think it's very interesting that we're reading through John, and John right out of the gate sets that tone at the beginning of this letter saying, God is light. There is no way you or I are ever going to come before him. Save the work of Christ and him alone. And I think it's amazing as you read through this, you think, man, are we losing sight of it? And we've done this so many times that we're ready to jump out of the plane without it. Grab onto your book. Be a person of that book. I remember one time at Bible college and was taking my Greek classes and uh, there was a gentleman who attended the school who was Greek Orthodox, which I thought was odd, but they allowed him to take some Greek classes. And one day, I, I don't know about you, if you've ever seen my Bible, it's been, uh, I write through it and I mark it, and there's been coffee spilt on it. I never heard it, never heard my Bible. It's, it's resolved, right? It's made it through. But this one time in class, I remember, I, of course, a different Bible at the time was marking my Bible, reading through before class began. And he came and he said to me, you Protestants treat the Word of God so poorly. Right? And I'm having a moment where I'm studying my Bible and I'm thinking, who are you? Why didn't you see me reading? What's going on? <clears throat> so I said, okay, well, uh, you're a Greek Orthodox. I get that. So what do you, how do you do? Do you do this? How do you study the Bible? All right? In a very pompous way, he, I think it was pompous, he, he said to me, well, I, I take the passage and I write it out on a piece of paper and then I, then I mark it up. To which my response was, well, is that not still the Word of God? And there's that moment, I don't know if you've ever experienced that in people's lives where they've never thought that through, right? And they kind of, this train wreck moment where he looks at me and has absolutely nothing to say and just turns and walks away. So in essence, what is he saying? The binding is holy. The paper is holy and the ink is holy. No. It is the truth. And whether that's written in this form or whether I write it on a piece of paper, it is God's truth. And it should become real and passionate to you. When I was in Oklahoma, you know, I, I, I've, I love reading God's Word. I love getting into it. I love being challenged by it. It challenges me all the time, right? Uh, I remember being in Oklahoma, and I grew up in, in the valley. And where the weather here takes two weeks to change, right? I just all my life have understood that. In Oklahoma, it doesn't work that way. Okay, if it takes two weeks for the weather to change here, it takes two minutes for it to change there. That's just the reality. Accept that, and you'll do fine in Oklahoma. 
I remember one specific time we'd been in, I think it was just becoming a youth pastor. We just moved there. And I think it was in the first week or eight or 10 days of living there. I get a call from the pastor. He says, hey, there's a tornado coming. You may want to come over to our house. Grab your wife and come on over. This thing's getting, it usually doesn't come here, but it's getting kind of close. Sirens are going off. And there's this moment of like, what? I'm in California. We know tornadoes. What are you talking about, right? And, and of course, you kind of you look outside. It's horrible. I remember having this moment of what do I grab? What have you ever experienced that? What do I, what's the most valuable to me? I grabbed my wallet, right? Put it in my pocket. And I thought, well, if something happens, people will know who I am. That was the thinking. Well, if God calls me, this is it. They'll know I'm Tyson, so that's good. <laughs> they find me somewhere in a tree. All right. And then I had this other moment, and the only thing I could think of was grabbing my Bible. I didn't, but I thought that was the only two things I thought of. And I thought, that's so weird, right? I find me with my Bible, but that's what I thought. Let's grab this and uh, put my wallet and... And all the other things, you think, what is most important? And now that's a great indicator. <laughs> that was a given. <laughs> she was the one going, you should pay attention to him. Let's leave. She grew up in Oklahoma, and I'm thinking, what is going on, right? But it, it, it is very true. Is the Bible dear to you? Do you read it? Do you mark it? Is it changing your life? These are very important to John. They should be very important to us. They're very important to our Savior. Very important to Paul, the writers of the New Testament. Know this. Because John's saying, look, here's confidence. You shouldn't live this life in, in being not assured. You should live this life being assured. I have Christ. I can say with Paul, I know in whom I have believed. I know Christ has overcome this world. I know I have hardships. But I know that I know him because I have his word. I've read it. I believe in Christ and him alone. So we need to grow. We rooted in God's word. We also should have a living faith that is dependent upon God. Be dependent upon him for everything, not the big things. Don't get to a place where you say, Lord, I know you're busy. You've got all this stuff. You know what? Have this too, but these few things over here, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. I got this. Don't live there. Live all of it. Be dependent. God, I need you there. I also need you here. Lord, I trust you in your word that even through this, my desire and, my, and my, uh, my hope, Lord, is that even in this, in my dependency, that somehow you would be glorified in me as I trust you, as I walk through this trial. Peter said this to those suffering in the early church, 1 Peter 5, 7 through 11. He says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, established, strengthened, and settled you, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. If we can say that to those who are physically suffering for the gospel, shouldn't we be dependent on things that we are walking through? You know, the church in a general sense is very good. We're very good at pointing out people's problems. Isn't that the truth? Here's your problem. What's your, I don't have any, but here's what your problem is. We're kind of good at that. And we need to reverse that and say, you know what? God has a better way. Here's the answers. Here's, I love you enough to say this, not because I'm judging. There's one judge, and guess what? I love you enough to say there's a judge. You want to make some changes here. Instead of pointing out what's wrong, start, start investing and in, in finding out what's happening and give some answers to that. 
Be dependent upon God. Help God. Help others become dependent on him. And at last, our living faith should be humble before God. Jesus says, therefore, whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's only when we're aware of our own weakness sometimes that we really rely upon him. Lord, I can't handle this, so therefore, you're going to have to do this. And I believe the Lord wants us to operate in an attitude of humility and weakness in the sense where he might demonstrate his grace and his power and his might. And we have to remember that even in this context, John is saying we. He includes himself and the little children. And now little children abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed. So when he comes, and he is coming, will you be one that has confidence? Will you have an honest obedience? Will you be dependent upon him? Will you be trusting him? Will you understand the right motivation, the true motivation that says, man, he is the king. The king is coming for me. A love for his word, a dependency on his word. Am I grabbing hold of his gospel with both hands? Letting go of this world that is passing away. Are we growing in our righteousness and our love for each other? Our love for the lost? Are we being broken for those who do not know? We need to trust God's forgiveness, trust his grace, be empowered by his spirit, be filled with the right kind of attitude and motivation, have the right scrap iron mentality in those difficult days. There is one who has come, Jesus the righteous. He is my advocate. And even though today, Lord, I haven't done my best, I haven't lived the life I should, I come and Complete repentance, dependent upon you, forgive me. And use my life to bring you glory that others might come to know you as well.